Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, today I wanted to talk about kind of an odd topic. So a few years back, I saw this weird claim in some book or article I was reading. I don't remember what it was now, but it was this castaway remark about the physicist Brian Greene, favorite of ours here. Yeah, right? we've talked, to, talked about him uh, on the show before, one of the co-founders of the World Science Festival. Right. Mentioning the possibility that scientists could create a universe in lab conditions. It's kind of an odd thing to say, so obviously yeah. I was intrigued, but I didn't really follow up on it at the time. It stuck with me, though. I kept the, is that really possible, or is this just some funny physicist thought experiment? Is it one of those jokes that gets worked out in math? And recently I became aware of a new book by a science writer with a PhD in physics named Zia Morali addressing exactly this question. So the book is called A Big Bang in a Little Room, The Quest to Create New Universes by Basic Books. It came out this year. And this book addresses exactly that question of whether you can actually create a universe under laboratory conditions, not just as a joke, but in reality. And if you could do that, what would that capability mean for us and our civilization? So that's the question I wanted us to look at today. Is this really something we could do? And if so, how would you do it? Yeah, because this is a this is such a huge question, uh, because we're we're asking a question about, you know, basic cosmology. Like we're 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 talking about creating a new universe without really having it completely boiled uh, uh, down how our universe came into being. Totally. I mean, I mean, and of course, that presents a very big problem mm-hmm. for anybody wanting to create a universe in the lab is like we're not even sure how the one universe we're aware of came into being. We know a lot of things right. about its early history, but we don't know the ultimate question of its origin. Yeah. And in terms of uh, sort of God complex Frankenstein uh, aspirations for the, the human species, I mean, we're still working on uh, some of the much smaller stuff. Right. <laughs> Creating, a, you know, a, a rational animal out of um, and of spare parts parts uh like that's that alone is uh, is is enough of a challenge without getting into the idea of an entire universe uh that is uh, that that springs up at the the snap of a finger yeah is a civilization obsessed with the ethics of whether to create robot soldiers and sex robots really <laughs> ready to make a whole universe yeah well, I don't know, but people have obviously been obsessed with the origins of the universe since a long time before science had anything useful to say about it, right? I mean, we we have scientific cosmology now, and this is a thing that's really just emerged pretty much in the last century. Uh, but our myths from ancient times are full of these beautiful creation from chaos or creation from the void stories, which envision a universe coming into focus out of empty space, nothingness, or some kind of other uninhabited primordial condition, often like an ocean or a yeah. sea or ice or something like that. Yeah, I mean, we've been asking the same questions about our universe uh, as long as we've inhabited it, really. Really, really, as long as we've had the, the, you know, the cognitive ability to just sort of gaze up at the stars and wonder what we're looking at and then how it all came into being. And one thing I find interesting about all of these, uh, creation out of darkness, uh, myths is that it seems to line up with our individual experience uh, of arising from unconsciousness, of waking from unconsciousness. Yeah. Uh, and, and certainly there are there are plenty of creation myths that add this this additional layer of anthropomorphism where the, the universe is made from a body or is shaped like a body. Our understanding of the cosmos is is like lined up with the shape of the human body. Uh, therefore, it makes sense that we would we would take that that personal experience of the universe and try to, uh, you know, apply it to everything within it. Yeah, there are lots of classic myths. I, I like that you point that out. Uh, I think that's a really interesting idea about it mirroring our expansion into the world from mm-hmm. a place of darkness and unknown. You know, before you were born, it's not like you were sitting around waiting to be born. You just didn't exist or you at least weren't aware of anything as far as you know. Yeah. As far as you can remember. Now, for all those past lives, I may have been <laughs> kings and sorcerers and wonderful creatures. Uh uh, never mind. That's a discussion for another day. No, no, yeah, but you're right. But for the most part, in the beginning, there was darkness. <laughs> yeah, like that's our personal experience of reality, and it makes sense that we would uh, apply that 
uh, to the cosmos as a whole. Now, later in the episode, of course, we're going to look at the science of the real earliest moments of the universe, mm-hmm. how the universe came to be the way it is, and how you might create universes in the lab if such an idea has any merit at all. Uh, but I thought we should actually look at a few of these mythological realizations about the origins of the universe because they are so fun and so fascinating. And they also give you a peek into the minds of the ancient people who pondered this question without any real information to draw on. Yeah, and plus these will be fun to come back to as well when we start uh, cracking open some of these uh, these scientific views of, uh, of the birth of our universe. There's one piece of Norse mythology literature that I wanted to look at that has a great creation out of chaos story in it. And this is a piece of Norse mythology literature called the uh, Gilfagening. And so I just want to read this section from an English translation. It's got this king, and this king is talking to these these powerful be- beings uh, that that are answering questions for him, and he, okay. he's asking these probing questions about the universe. So uh, this king named uh, Gangleri asked, "How were things wrought ere the races were and the tribes of men increased?" Then said Har. The streams called ice waves, those which were so long come from the fountain heads that the yeasty venom upon them had hardened like the slag that runs out of the fire. These then became ice, and when the ice halted and ceased to run, then it froze over above. But the drizzling rain that rose from the venom congealed to rime, and the rime increased, frost over frost, each over the other, even into Gap, the yawning void. Uh, then another one speaks, Yafenhar. Gap, which faced toward the northern quarter, became filled with heaviness and masses of ice and rime, and from within drizzling rain and gusts, but the southern part of the yawning void was lighted by those sparks and glowing masses which flew out of the Muspelheim. And then a third uh, great ruler speaks and says, quote, just as cold arose out of Niflheim and all terrible things, so also all that looked toward Muselheim became hot and glowing, and the yawning void was as mild as windless air, and when the breath of heat met the rime so that it melted and dripped, life was quickened from the yeast drops by the power of that which sent the heat and became a man's form, and that man is named Ymir, but the rime giants call him Argelimir. Oh man, I I really like the uh, the idea of the yeasty venom. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's this freezing and melting process which yeah. gives rise to the order of the universe in the Norse mythology idea. And is there a sense of uh, fermentation there as well? Just with the yeah, with the, the couple of mentions of yeast makes me uh, maybe I'm there's something that like lost beer there, but... is central to their vision yeah. of the cosmos. It's fr- frozen beer and venom coming to life, <laughs> freezing and melting. What could be more more Nordic than that? <laughs> All right. Well, I have uh, I have one here that also uh, it touches on similar territory. Uh, actually, I have a couple I'm going to read here, and these are both from Chinese mythology. Okay. Uh, in Chinese myth, this is one of those areas where you have multiple different origin stories for the universe that, right. that kind of make the Make the make the rounds depending on where you're going in Chinese history and who's doing the talking. So it's not going to be like a single codified myth, right? And you 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 see this in a number of different uh, faiths. You also right. see this in Hinduism, uh, as we'll, we'll get to in a bit. But uh, this one in particular comes uh, from uh, the fourth century BCE. Um, one of uh, it's one of a few different Chinese uh, cosmology myths uh, related uh, in Anne Beryl's uh, Chinese mythology and introduction, and she points out. That these cosmologies are are essentially authorless, uh, but I, I really like this one because it describes the primordial darkness as moist and the same in a way that reminds one of uh, a singularity. In the beginning of the eternal past, when all was the ultimate sameness in vast empty space, empty and the same, all was one, one eternally at rest, moist, wet, and murky, dim. Before there were darkness and light. Oh, that is great. Moist, wet, and murky dim. Yeah. 
Uh, but also I like this idea of the original chaos of creation being homogeneity, mm-hmm. that there is a lack of division between things. Yes. And that actually, and so the, the, that implies the emergence of order or the creation of recognizable objects and structure to the universe is in fact a cleaving of sameness into difference. Yes. Yeah, and and that'll come back again when we uh, we get to a couple of Hindu examples. Now, it, there's an, there's another uh, uh, Chinese example I want to hit there, uh, and this is from uh, Huainan Zhu, an early uh, Han work by Han Dynasty Prince uh, Lu An. Uh, so I love the the mystery uh, of the the words in this translation. Okay, let's hear it. Before heaven and earth had formed, there was a shapeless dark expanse, a gaping mass. Thus, it was called the Great Glory, the Way. Tao first came from vacant space. Vacant space gave birth to the cosmos, and cosmos gave birth to the breath, and the breath had its limits. Had its limits? Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, well, a- and after this part, uh, yin and yang come into play. So you get sort okay. of the, um, you know, the, the duality that is uh, central uh, to Taoism becomes, uh, you know, an important force in the, the continuing formation of the universe. So there are sort of limits imposed by counterposing opposites. Yes. Uh, here's another uh, bit from this. Long ago, before heaven and earth existed, there were only images but no forms, and all was dark and obscure, a vast desolation, a misty expanse, and nothing knew where its own portals were. There were two gods born out of chaos who wove the sky and designed the earth. And these two gods are the, the yin and yang forces. Interesting. Yeah. Again, here with the yin and yang forces, it's like we're seeing a, a, a division or a distinction as the act of establishing creation. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I mentioned the the Hindu models uh, earlier, so I do want to touch on a couple of these. So too often we see this trope of, of just order out of chaos, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but Hinduism places a value on both properties. So if, if you go back to early um, you know, Vedic ideas about the creation of the universe. You have this Vedic creator deity, uh, Prajapti. And uh, Prajapti strove to make the, a universe that could contain both order and chaos, so the energies of the devas and the asuras. So the first creation was too orderly and seemingly too boring, too uniform. So there's just too much sameness. It's like a fascist universe. Yeah. Everything must obey. Yeah, and then, uh, and then he creates a second universe. But this one's too chaotic, too fragmented. But the third, uh-huh. the third was just right. Um, <laughs> the Goldilocks yeah. universe. Just enough chaos for you. Just enough chaos. Just enough. Uh, just enough just to enough be order. interesting. Yeah. And uh, but the thing is, this too, uh, even though, the, you know, he essentially gets it right. Uh, there still has to be regular intervals of destruction and renewal. OK. Uh, and that's something, of course, when we start talking about uh, uh, some of our modern uh, models for the creation of the universe. Yeah, uh, we get into this a bit. The idea that uh, that that the there's an, an expansion and then a contraction of the universe. Well, in a lot of these things, and this is not to say that these myths were actually on to something scientifically. Mm-hmm. I think this is probably largely coincidence, or just has to do with the the depth of uh, our our ideas about how order and chaos work, but. Some of these do mirror modern scientific theories. Like one thing I was thinking was about the division or distinction model about yeah. establishing the order of the universe. This sort of mirrors the idea of these grand unified theories in physics, where in physics you've got the forces of the universe. Uh, aside from gravity, you've got the three forces, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and the electromagnetic force. And the grand unified theories propose that at some point in the past, way in the early universe, these were one single unified force. Mm-hmm. And the universe sort of comes to become the thing it is as these forces separate into yeah. distinct forces that have their own actions and their own mediating particles. Yeah, so maybe Prajapti was onto something. Now, Prajapti becomes associated with the god Brahma in the post-Vedic age. But this is, again, a situation where with Hinduism, uh, like with Chinese mythology, there's no singular creation story. There are many. And uh, and again, there are no sing- there's no singular creation in Hinduism, but rather periodic cycles of creation uh, and destruction uh, and also uh, innumerable universes. So. In in our universe, for instance, uh, there's this idea in Hinduism that it begins with a vast ocean, and a serpent sleeps on its surface, and Vishnu sleeps in the coils of the serpent, and a lotus sprouts out from his navel, and within <laughs> it is Brahma. And uh, he's urged to meditate on the nature of his coming creation, and finally splits the lotus into three forms, making the heavens, the sky, uh, and earth. 
Everything else stems from this. Yet again, we get a division of the universe into its parts. Yeah. And uh, just a few more quick examples here. So in ancient Egypt, you had uh, none or knew the primeval waters, uh, the ocean of chaos, boundless, dark and stormy. Nice. And in Greek mythology, we have we have chaos personified, uh, chaos, the the, the being. Mm-hmm. So this is from uh, uh, the uh, theogony of uh, Hesiod from around uh, 700 BCE. OK. Verily at the first chaos came to be, but next wide bosomed earth, the ever sure foundations of all the deathless ones who hold the peaks of snowy Olympus and dim Tartarus in the depth of the wide pathed earth and Eros love. Fairest among the deathless gods, who unnerves the limbs and overcomes the mind and wise counsels of all gods and all men within them. From chaos came forth Erebus and black night, but of night were born ether and day, whom she conceived and bare from union in love with Erebus. Okay, so this one to me sounds more like some of these like Babylonian creation myths mm-hmm. and stuff where the forces of the universe are personified as creatures, monsters, or people. Yeah, very much so. The, the direct personification. Uh, though, I mean, you can say that the, the personification is maybe layered on top of just the, the idea of these forces interacting. You know, I wonder when people spoke these myths in the ancient world to, you know, to the extent that they were – believing them to be correct explanations of the origins of the universe, did they think of them metaphorically or did they think of them as literal? Like, did they literally think there was a person chaos or did the ancient Greeks understand that this was just a way of helping to visualize some more abstract process? Well, and of course, you also have to think about the fact that that so many of these different uh, mythologies and folk tales and, and, and no matter what level to what level they're personified or just uh, uh, related as, as forces interacting, uh, you know, they're going to they're probably going to vary depend on who's who's telling them and who they're telling them to. Right. Like I can imagine a situation where someone might look back on a uh, like like a you know, an animated feature about how germs work that we created for children in the 1970s. <laughs> and if they if that's all you had to yeah. go on, you might say, oh, well, they thought that germs had little cartoon faces and and, and became angry. Yeah, that's sort of you what know? I'm asking. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I don't know, but it, I, I could see it going either way. You know, you could certainly imagine this being the version you told everyone, but it was in, but everyone might have been in agreement that, yeah, these were not real people. These were, this is just a, a fun way of remembering the, these, uh, these interactions and a fun way of passing them on. Are you an ancient historian? Do you have insights into how people process <laughs> these myths and to what extent they were believed to be literal? If so, let us know. I, I want to know more about that. One last myth we should look at. Uh, let's look at the book of Genesis, the Hebrew oh, yeah. Bible. Uh, I love the Genesis creation story. It's very beautifully written. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Oh, yeah, that's and, good. Oh, so good. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. It's great. I mean, I, 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 the poetry of it is, is lovely. Now, it's definitely a, a, an account in which God or a creator entity shows up from right. somewhere and it's like, what we got here? A bunch of darkness. Let's start. Let's do something with this. So there's not, there's nothing about God emerging from that darkness. It's just you, you, you wake up. It's like, it's like starting a movie. You're in the room. Here's God in the darkness. Yeah. Here's your protagonist. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that, I mean, all, all of these myths really start you with something because what else could they do? Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to have some kind of instigating event or matter in the story or there cannot be a story. Yeah. And that question also translates under real questions about the cosmology of the universe. So, mm-hmm. you know, th- there are always these questions of the infinite regress of causes. You know, does the universe in some sense require a primary explanation? Like even if you manage to do away with all kinds of other explanations, like where do the principles that govern your your physics come from? Uh, and we can look at more more of that as we go on. One interesting fact I wanted to note about creation mythologies, there are actually religions without creation mythologies. One example would be uh, Jainism or Jainism. You know, this mm-hmm. is found, uh, I believe uh, there's a lot of uh, Jainism practiced in India. Yeah. 
and they they reject the idea of a creator deity or a creation event. Their religious cosmology is just of an eternally existing universe. Yeah. Anyway, I, I find that really interesting, but I also find it interesting how rare that is. But this throws up a dichotomy. The origin of the cosmos, I think, is a is a necessarily fascinating thing to contemplate because you know that no matter which theory is true, one half of this dichotomy is correct. Either the universe began to exist or it did not begin to exist. If it did not begin to exist, this implies there's an infinite past, something that feels just impossible to imagine, right? That the past goes on forever into backward Mm -hmm. time. How can you picture that? It seems somehow so counterintuitive it's almost self-contradictory. Well, but, that is at least for for modern individuals who have oh, a sure, typical yeah. view of time. Yeah, you know, we think of our we think of our life as the story from cradle to the grave. We think of of everything as this kind of story or movie in which we're the the prime character. Right. Uh, but uh, I could I could certainly see that you know. An, an, a person from a, an older culture in which time is seen as cyclical and there's, there's, you know, everything comes back around and individual, individuals are only important insofar as they, they, you know, they shadow some, uh, some figure from the past or some movement from the past. I could see that view of time lining up more easily with an idea of the infinite past and future. Well, a cyclical eternity is an interesting thing to contemplate because mm-hmm. that seems to uh, – that's a little bit different than just like an, an eternally past regressive infinity. Right. You know what I mean? Something that cycles back and forth between the beginning and the end forever versus something that just goes back forever. Because certainly you still have, even in that scenario, you still have causation. Yeah. You still have, uh, you still have events causing things to happen. And I dare say you're still going to have five-year-olds who are asking questions about why things are the way they are. Uh-huh. And you have to answer them one way or another. Now, one thing that comes to mind is it, in in the absence of a like a, a certain cultural tr- uh, story that you're supposed to roll out when someone says hey where the, when the kid asks where did the universe come from and you say oh well god created it or uh you know uh, there were, hey there used to be this moist darkness and it <laughs> rolls right. out from there uh i'm going with the moist darkness from <laughs> now on by the way yeah uh, i i like that one but but it seems like it would be ideal to not only have some story to tell them, but a story that if it doesn't have actual truth in it about the actual origins of the universe, then at least it has some level of um, relatability to it. There's some there's some level of truth to it, you know? You mean just some level of truth as in applicability to your life. You can get something out of it even if it's not a correct yeah. description of the cosmos. Like it, maybe it, it explains something about the, you know, the, the interaction of forces within either within your world or within your worldview. Yeah, sure. Uh, but I want, I, real quick, I wanted to hit the other half of that dichotomy, okay. right? So imagine the past is not eternal in that reality did begin to exist at some point. There's a limit on the past history of existence. That seems to me about equally implausible and, and <laughs> counterintuitive. How, how can you picture that? Like, it, it's no wonder, I think, that religious traditions are obsessed with the origin of the universe. It's the ultimate explanation question. And because of this like this dichotomy, no matter what the answer to it is, that answer is a total mystery. It commands awe. And you know that one of them has to be correct. Yeah. I mean, this this kind of gets down to the, the basic nature of humans is having this uh, this ability to plan beyond their own life, uh, uh, their own lifespan, you know, um, and in doing so, not only are they planning beyond their own lifespan, but they're also trying to figure out how we got to where we are with with previous generations so humans have kind of trapped themselves like part of our survival technique is to uh is to view time as existing uh, beyond our life and before it Mm -hmm. Uh, but you kind of end up wrapping in beginnings and endings in that right i guess what i'm trying to say is that you know there's no there's no ape cosmology for a number of reasons. Yeah. Uh, but one of those reasons is that the, the ape is perfectly content uh, to live within the, the confines of its life, even with the, just the confines of its Yeah, moment. okay, I see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like, uh, like our reckoning of our own mortality and the finitude of our life sort of forces us to look beyond in a way that other animals presumably don't. Yeah. Maybe I'm gazing too deep into the void on that one. But No, keep <laughs> gazing. Eventually you'll penetrate the moist darkness with your eyes. <laughs> 
Now, of course, scientists have spent years putting together a totally different picture of how the universe came to be. And this is going to be a picture based on verified physics. And so I think that's what we should look at when we come back from the break. All right, we're back. Now, obviously, we've got to look at what scientists have discovered about how our universe came to exist. You might be thinking, of course, the Big Bang, right? That's how the universe came to exist. But I I think this is a slight misconception about what the Big Bang is and one of the most common misconceptions about mainstream science today. The Big Bang theory, I would posit, doesn't really claim to explain where the universe came from it describes the history of the universe. Mm -hmm. It says that the universe began in an incredibly hot, dense state, and it has been expanding and cooling for about 13.8 billion years. Now, the Big Bang theory is widely accepted by physicists as the correct explanation of the history of the universe, and the evidence for it is very strong. Uh, One piece of evidence comes from looking at the current expansion rate of the universe, and tracing it backward in time, which appears to indicate a shrinking of space toward a central point of incredible density. But another major piece of evidence is the cosmic microwave background radiation. So this is something we can see today. According to the Big Bang Theory, we'd predict that in the early universe, for a long time, matter was too dense to allow light to shine through. So can you picture this universe? It's a universe that's almost like a cloud of opaque material. It's Mm. so dense with particles like uh, neutrons, protons, electrons, positrons, neutrinos. Everything's crammed into this tight space um, that electromagnetic radiation like light uh, couldn't penetrate it. Charged electrons were so dense that they would constantly scatter any light that was trying to move around in the universe. And so the universe was opaque at that point. But then the universe started to cool and to allow electrons to pair up with protons and neutrons to make our friends the atoms, electrically neutral atoms. And this happened at a time about 380,000 years after the beginning of the Big Bang. And this allowed the light to pass through. So suddenly radiation was visible throughout the universe. If you can imagine this moment in time, there's there's an opaque, dark universe crammed with hot, dense matter, and suddenly it's shining with light. Well, this brings to mind the the, the, the Norse example that, that you read earlier. Oh, yeah? Where everything begins to sort of twinkle at one point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, so this sudden shining of light, this afterglow of radiation is still visible today through our telescopes, and it's known as the cosmic microwave background radiation, and it's a great piece of evidence for the correctness of the Big Bang Theory to explain the expansion of our universe. But, as we've said, the Big Bang Theory doesn't actually go all the way back, right? It picks up with that hot, dense state of the earliest moments of our universe. So where did that hot, dense state come from? Yeah, You have to approach the question with the, the mind of a scientist or, or the mind of a five-year-old and say, oh, well, well, what came before that? Exactly. So, so what explains its existence? Is there a more fundamental structure or law guiding the cosmos? Obviously, we are going to look at that question, but also it's worth noting that since 1980s, it's important to pay attention to the fact that the Big Bang model has been very much enriched by the development of what's known as cosmic inflation theory. Inflation theory is too dense and too difficult to explain all the mechanics of right here. It would sort of take over the episode, I think. Maybe we can tackle it someday in the future if Mm -hmm. we're feeling ambitious and brave. Uh, But I will stick with the simplest summary I can for today. Inflation Theory says that in the earliest split second of the universe, this is before the universe is a second old. In fact, it's about 10 to the negative 34 seconds old, which is a tiny, tiny amount of time. The rate of the expansion of the universe suddenly dramatically increases. So the universe is expanding. And for a short time in that first second, it begins inflation, which means it expands way, way faster than it was expanding anyway. Uh, and it got much faster and then and then at a certain point slowed down again. And then we have the, the regular expansion rate of the universe we observe today. Now, the really surprising thing about that inflation period, however, mm-hmm. is that it looks like it has the power to conjure matter into existence as the bubble space-time region expands. So during this inflation period, 
you suddenly get particles popping into existence from the space-time that's expanding. And the physicist Alan Guth, who's known as one of the main people behind inflation theory, has joked about this finding, quote, In the context of inflationary cosmology, it's fair to say that the universe is the ultimate free lunch. (laughs) The free lunch there being the matter that makes up our bodies and the stars. Wow, you know the the this inflation uh, period is really um I, this this is a an area of uh, of a lot of possibility yeah. for science because this is also where you get various arguments about um you know how fast can something travel in the universe oh sure if it's not something in the universe as much as a piece of the universe like something like a, a ship within a bubble of space time right we know from relativity theory that no object with mass in the universe no information can travel faster than the speed of light mm-hmm. it's impossible but it turns out that does not apply to the universe or space-time region itself right. according to inflation which i should note is not considered quite proven right there appears to be a lot of good evidence for inflation and i think it's widely accepted as mainstream science by physical cosmologists today but it's not like it's not a lock. It's not a solidly proven theory. It just looks like a really good one. And if one were to personify all of these forces, you could say, well, the universe is a god and things within the universe are mere mortals. Right. And therefore we are not bound by the same rules. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I got distracted. No, yeah. what I meant to say was that under inflation, yeah, the universe expands faster than the speed of light. Yeah. While things in the universe can't go faster than the speed of light, the universe itself can. But to come back to this question of ultimate causes, the the ultimate origins or explanation of everything in the universe, where did it all come from? Nobody really knows for sure the answer to that. I mean, there have been people working on this from a scientific perspective. Uh, physicists like Alexander Vilenkin and Lawrence Krauss, they've put forward these models where, to best explain it, sort of the naked laws of quantum mechanics acting on no original quantity of matter can give rise to space-time, which then undergoes inflation to expand and create the universe. Does that make any sense? (laughs) I know it's hard to picture, but essentially they're working from a model where what you've got is quantum vacuum. You've got the, the laws of quantum mechanics, and they don't need anything to work with. They just acting on themselves generate space, time, and matter. It's kind of, it seems to, to me like one of the difficulties in, in picturing all of this, especially for someone who's not just really uh, immersed in the physics of it, is that we live in a world of bread and we're trying to understand the, the batter, right? yeah. <laughs> the dough, if you will, I guess. Or, um, or we're trying to understand, no, we live in a world of bread and we're trying to understand the wheat, not yeah. really the wheat. Uh, we're trying to understand where the wheat came from, yeah. but the wheat comes from atoms. I, there, there's no analogy, really, that yeah. works. It, it's almost as if you, we live in a world of bread and what we discovered is that there are physics models you can put together where the instructions or the recipe for baking bread creates the flour and the the eggs and the water and stuff that you need to bake the bread with. Oh, See, we're going into the deep end in this in this episode for sure. So, yeah, there's a lot of crazy counterintuitive stuff in, mm-hmm. in looking at the physical cosmology of the universe. And and like I said, nobody knows what the correct model of the the ultimate origins of the cosmos are, or at least as far back as it would be possible for us to understand. But there are also these other interesting models of sort of the ultimate fundamental nature of the universe. There's this model of loop quantum gravity and the big crunch. Under loop quantum gravity, space-time is made up of one-dimensional threads called loops, And these loops are spontaneously created by the laws of quantum mechanics, yet again, like I'm saying. Mm So you've got the laws of quantum mechanics, and they just make this stuff. And then this stuff makes up the fabric of our universe. And loop quantum gravity implies a cyclical expansion and contraction of the universe occurring eternally. So every time you have a big bang, the universe expands and then leads to an eventual contraction and crunching back down to a singularity at the end, going back and forth eternally, kind of like our Vedic myths, right? Yeah, yeah. This a lot of commentators have pointed out that uh, that this this uh, this idea of continual uh, destruction and rebirth uh, lines up with the big crunch idea uh, fairly closely. It's and it's essentially the idea that the universe is a boomerang video uh, you know, <laughs> uh, shared on Instagram where you can just watch it go ah, back and forth, back and forth. That's the you lose your worst mind. metaphor you've ever used <laughs> on this show. 
I, I make a lot of boomerangs these days. It's so. like a dog tongue whipping back and forth yes. forever. <laughs> uh, no, it shows you what I look at on Instagram. Dog tongues forever. <laughs> now, so that's your handle. Exactly. Dog tongues, dog tongues forever on uh, Instagram. Follow Joe. Forever. At dog tongues forever. Hashtag dog tongues forever. Obviously, now for some people in this, this ultimate origins question, we should acknowledge for a lot of people put the, a religious answer in here, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that involves ice waves and cos- cosmic venom and moist darkness or some kind of supernatural immaterial mind who decides to create a universe. Uh, a lot of people want to go in that direction and that to them, they, they feel provides an explanation. To me, uh, not to degrade that as an answer, but it seems like a different kind of explanation than the scientific explanations. It's not, it's not dealing in exactly the same kind of, uh, trying to find precise terminology and to specify causal relationships and to mathematically, uh, you know, quantize the, what's involved. Well, I mean, ultimately all you can do is create some sort of visual metaphor for this just utterly unknowable time like just the idea of there's god in the darkness and he's alone right kind of bored like (laughs) we can sort of imagine that we can imagine somebody being alone in the darkness sort of uh, this idea of just sitting there with your eyes closed in bed and you haven't woken up you haven't opened your eyes and 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 moved on with your day yet yeah yeah it seems it's a more narrative kind of explanation than a than a causal law or theory explanation essentially you say let's just tie a nice little narrative bow here Mm -hmm. and we're done until a five-year-old or a scientist asks questions. Right. But here's maybe, here's maybe the weirdest alternative. What if the origin of our universe is that it came from another universe that existed before it? Hmm. Not in a cyclical universe model where you've got the ex- permanent, you know, expansion and contraction, but it, what if this universe was created in a laboratory in another uh. universe? Would such a thing be possible? And that's what we're going to look at now. This is that's the meat of this episode. All right. Well, let's take another break. And when we come back, we'll ask the question, could we create a universe? And if we could, what does that even mean? What are the the, what are the 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 limitless uh, ramifications of that act? Okay, so from here on out, when we're exploring the concept of creating baby universes in the laboratory, I want to be very clear that we're venturing into the speculative realm. None of these universe creation hypotheses are proven to be achievable, but I do think it'll be fun to explore the possibilities that have been explored by scientists. So it's time to go back to uh, Zia Morali's book, the book that I mentioned at the top of the episode, The Big Bang in a Little Room or The Quest to Create New Universes. So what does she propose in her book? Well, she explores this possibility uh, put forward by many scientists, including people like Alan Guth and Andre Lind and, and others over the years, that you could perhaps create a universe in the laboratory. And it's based on the theory of inflation, which, as we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, is not necessarily totally proven, but it's a widely accepted theory in cosmology today. Again, this is particles popping into existence. Right? Yeah, yeah, in this uh, sudden ex- uh, rapid expansion mm-hmm. rate of space-time uh, triggered by what's known as a false vacuum. You create these spaces that expand rapidly, and they create particles as they expand, sort of churning a universe into existence. Okay. But anyway, the idea is, uh, as Alan Guth and many others over the years have hypothesized, it might be possible to create a universe with the use of an extremely powerful particle accelerator like the Large Hadron Collider, but probably of a even much higher energy than that. So Morali explains one currently favored hy- hypothetical process in her book, and in this process, you would need to start with a particle called a monopole. Now, a monopole is a hypothetical elementary particle that's defined by the fact that it has, as its name implies, only one magnetic pole. Hmm. Now, what? You might be thinking, like, wait a minute, only one magnetic pole. So you've, you've played with magnets before, right? The picture of a bar magnet, mm-hmm. north and south pole. You put the north and south poles of two magnets together and they'll attract. Try to put the north and north poles together of two magnets and they will repel one another. But you can't cut your bar magnet in half and create a bar magnet with only a north pole, right? If you just, if you cut it in half, in fact, you, what, what you'll do is create two magnets right. with a north pole and a south pole each. So how could you create something 
that only had one pole. Like, can you imagine a, a planet with only a North Pole and no South Pole? No, I mean, the, 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 the most obvious answer would be cut a planet in half, but you still have, there's still going to be a top and a bottom. Like, it's still a, a three-dimensional object yeah, in then space. Yeah, you just generate a new North Pole and right, South, yeah. South Pole. Yeah, so it's hard to picture, but physics predicts that these particles are out there. Uh, so could we get our hands on a monopole if you need one for this experiment? Well, it's hard to say. Like I said, there, there are good reasons based in physics to think that they do exist, but we've never found any naturally occurring in the universe. So maybe we're totally misguided. There are no monopoles out there. Um, and we've looked for them. We've looked in cosmic rays. Are they shooting across the universe in cosmic rays? We've looked in the oceans. We've looked embedded in ancient rocks. We've looked at moon rocks to see if they have monopoles in them. And so far, zilch. But we have created synthetic monopole quasi-particles, uh, they're called, in this human-made crystal called spin ice. Morelli, she talks about this in her book. Uh, and this seems to indicate that monopoles are possible in nature, even if we haven't found any yet. So what are some potential ideas for how we could get one? Well, maybe you could make them in a particle collider like the Large Hadron Collider. In fact, the Large Hadron Collider, they've got a detector in place to try to find out if it has accidentally generated any monopoles. Or you could maybe catch one flying through the universe and you'd use the what you'd use to catch it is a squid, not a bio squid. <laughs> and I'm thinking of the big uh there was the show was it uh uh Silverhawks, I think. Remember this? It was I've never of, seen this. What is this? It was kind of like uh, Thundercats, except in space. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was uh, the bad guy, the the, the Mumra of this show, uh, turned into a big robot guy who rode a space squid. But that's not what we're talking about here. Well, I got to look this up now. Yeah. But no, this is this is a squid, which means a superconducting quantum interference device. It's an acronym. It's probably going to be an easy way to catch it. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like a cage that ha- that is tuned so as to catch an object with a single directional magnetic charge. Uh, and so it, it, because of the single directional magnetic charge, the monopole, if it passes into this cage, it should trigger detectable current in the device, get trapped in the, into the device, and let you know that you've trapped a monopole inside that we could harvest. All right, so you have a monopole at this point. Let's say you, you, you found it. It exists. You have one in your hand or in your you know vacuum tube or whatever. What do you do with it? You probably don't want it in your hand. You want, yes. yeah, you want it captured mm-hmm. and you put it into your high energy particle collider with some other massive particles. And then you get them going. You accelerate these and you accelerate them and accelerate them up to near the speed of light to increase their energy. And then you smash them together. And mathematically, from the properties of the monopole, we can predict that if you transfer enough energy to the monopole by smashing it in the particle collider, it will probably begin, at least according to this theory, to undergo inflation like the early universe did, or at least like we think it did which would rend space-time itself, creating a tunneling wormhole into a new bubble of space-time. And this is what's sometimes called a baby universe, a sort of a a new space-time that pinches off like a blister from our other space-time, and it would begin rapidly expanding. It would create inflation within this region. Now, you might be scared like, oh, so if it's inflating, wouldn't this inflate inside the particle collider, take over the lab, maybe destroy Mm -hmm. the Earth? Like suck us all into this baby universe bubble? It doesn't sound good to have a universe expanding inside your universe. No. I mean, unless you just call it a baby universe, and then that somehow sanitizes the whole thing. (laughs) But but everything, all the other terms we're throwing out here, like wormhole, Uh uh, are are kind of terrifying. Yeah, but that's not what would happen, because it's a separate space-time region. Mm -hmm. So it can expand out to universe-sized proportions with without actually touching anything in our universe. What we would see supposedly in our universe, if this process is possible, is we would see what looks like a mini black hole. So these are when you when you occasionally see sort of semi-scandalous science headlines, they're talking about the LHC could create miniature black holes. This is one. This is what they're referring to. It's well, it's slightly different, okay. but uh, similar. It. The the Large Hadron Collider could potentially, as far as we know, maybe create many black holes. We haven't found any in it yet. Mm-hmm. But if it could create them, there is no reason to be alarmed about these. The, there's no reason to think that they would suck in the Earth or anything like that. Physicists have done the math. 
these mini black holes are going to dissipate and they're not going to they're not going to harm our universe. And they might be delicious. We don't know. Now, and then, of course, the other key thing is that if you're creating a baby universe, uh-huh. that's a baby universe. There aren't going to be any, uh, uh, you know, deadly cosmic elder gods in there. No Todash darkness. Uh, it's all new. Well, right? you don't know because it it could be full of cosmic elder gods. It could be full, full of Todash darkness because it's going to be its own universe. It can evolve however it wants. Oh, okay. So it could evolve creatures like us. It could evolve Klingons, a universe made entirely of Klingons. I mean, it could evolve uh, the Todash Dark. Ah, now, of course, there's the whole issue of time, but that gets a little bit sticky, to say the least, right? When you're talking about space time in that bubble. Oh, yeah. I mean, time is time is very odd if you try to take the perspective of looking at the universe from outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is another problem that physicists have often looked at. It seems that time is a very real uh, factor of our universe. It's, you know, considered the fourth dimension of space time. It appears that things happen in time in an ordered sequence. But there are also reasons to think mathematically, if, if you just do the equations, it looks like if you were to able to look at the universe from outside, it should be static mm-hmm. in terms of like it shouldn't evolve. It should be just an object. All right. So, you know, you would be looking at all time within that universe yeah. if you were looking at it from the outside. I mean, it, it's kind of crazy because you would be essentially looking at the universe as a god. You would be looking at it as the uh, the all-knowing, uh, um, you know, all-existing being that created it, even if you created it by accident in your, your science lab. Well, one of one of the the bittersweet ironies of creating a universe in the laboratory is that we, we really wouldn't have any way to look inside it. Mm-hmm. There, there, we just wouldn't have access to that universe. So we'd see this little black hole, tiny mini black hole that's the portal of a wormhole to this new inflating universe. Eventually we would see the black hole dissipate over time. Uh-huh. It would lose particles through through tiny hawking radiation and it would eventually disappear from our end. But what that would actually signify is that it's closing off the wormhole that connects our two universes and then that universe is its own thing. And, and it's just separate from us, and we we can't okay. get to you. Can't get there from here. And whatever's going on inside there, it's just oh, you just have to guess. Like, right? Is there is there sentient life in there? Maybe, <laughs> maybe not. And if there is, then is it is it good? Are they having a good time in there? <laughs> is it are they having a pretty lousy time in there? I mean, that's something we should look at in a minute here yeah. when we discuss the possible ethics of creating universes. Now, I should real. Real quick address the question. There's been a lot of hypotheticals in describing this, yes. this process, right? Could you actually do this? Like, how plausible is this process? Eh, yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things that it's not involving anything that's like pure fantasy, but it also is counting on a lot of ifs. Yeah. Right? Like, if we capture a monopole, if we're able to achieve this process, if the, the interpretation of inflation is correct, all these ifs get factored in and your probability kind of goes down each time you add in another if into the equation. So, could you do this? It's tough to say. I mean, it's an interesting speculation. But we shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't walk away from this episode with the idea, yes, we can create baby universes in the lab. I think mm-hmm. it's still a big open question. In fact, I've read uh, in, in Morales' book, she talks about how Alan Guth, one of the authors of Inflation Theory, has he's gone back and forth about this over the years, uh, about the plausibility of creating baby universes in the lab. At first, he was one of the original physicists to postulate it. Then he got pessimistic about it. Then he became more open to it again. And so he's gone back and forth on that. Other physicists have, too. There's stuff that makes it look more plausible and then maybe makes it look less plausible. And it's been almost like a cyclical universe <laughs> of plausibility and doubt expanding back and forth. But also a great example uh, of, of the the basic scientific approach uh, that we've touched on many times in this show, that even even the, the individual who uh, who's, you know, who proposes this and is a proponent of the of it is going to question it and doubt it. Yeah. If they're being a responsible scientist, yeah. sure, they should be skeptical about their own pet theories. Mm-hmm. But of course, as we mentioned in getting into this topic, if this process is indeed possible, another if there, so in the speculative realm, in the world where we just accept that this is possible, we're faced with an intriguing question. Is that us? Are we the baby universe that was made in the particle accelerator of some alien science lab? Yeah, just as a complete accident. Like the entire, our entire universe from beginning to end is just uh, the, the blink of an eye. 
to this, uh, this, this greater universe beyond ours. Yeah. And of course, that also implies was their universe created as a baby universe in a particle accelerator in a lab in another alien universe. Mm -hmm. And then it's, and then it's particle accelerators in an alien lab all the way down. Yeah. And then you end up in the same scenario saying, well, what was the first universe? Right. What was that like? And then where did that come from? And then you're, you're asking yourself, is there, is there a beginning or an end to anything? Or is it just this, this, just this infinite dark ocean? Okay, but let's be skeptics for a minute and say, you know, there are a lot of ifs involved in this baby universe creation scenario. Let, let's go on the safe side and say, we're probably not going to be able to do that. Okay. Is there any other way to create a universe, to create a universe with beings in it apart from creating a different inflating space time? Well, what about simulating a universe? Oh yeah. I imagine there have been a number of listeners out there who've been like shouting uh, into the, their MP3 player, uh, the matrix, the matrix, this is the matrix, right? Exactly right. So a different but related argument. Mm-hmm. We live in a computer simulation. And in fact, uh, there's this famous now article by the Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom called, Are We Living in a Computer Simulation? is from 2003. And th- this article has proved incredibly, uh, <laughs> It has taken hostage many minds in philosophy departments around the world uh, saying, you know, look, here are the odds. Well, actually, you know what? I should just read. It's it's the main summary of its argument. OK, so Bostrom writes the following in this often excerpted quote. Many works of science fiction, as well as some forecasts by serious technologists and futurologists, predict that enormous amounts of computing power will be available in the future. Let us suppose for a moment that these predictions are correct. One thing that later generations might do with their super powerful computers is run detailed simulations of their forebears or of people like their forebears. Because their computers would be so powerful, they could run a great many such simulations. Suppose that these simulated people are conscious, as they would be if simulations were sufficiently fine-grained, and if a certain quite widely accepted position in the philosophy of mind is correct. Then it could be the case that the vast majority of minds like ours do not belong to the original race, but rather to people simulated by the advanced descendants of an original race. It is then possible to argue that if this were the case, we would be rational to think that we are likely among the simulated minds rather than among the original biological ones. Therefore, if we don't think that we are currently living in a computer simulation, we are not entitled to believe that we would have descendants who will run lots of such simulations of their forebears. Ah, he kind of catches us in the logic there, and it, it it makes a certain amount of sense, right? Well, a lot of people have taken this to mean, okay, we're living in a computer <laughs> simulation. I actually think the other half of his dilemma is the much more logical one. I, I think I, I sort of accept the dilemma. He's mm-hmm. saying, like, either we can make these, either we can't make these simulations, or it's more likely to think we're living in one. I think the answer is we probably can't make these simulations. Yeah. But, but the, but the argument is, is sound the other way to say that if this is the kind of thing that we, we will one day be able to do and will one day want to do. Yeah. Then who is to say that, that that is not the current reality? Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense. So I think what, where we get to is the problems with the plausibility of running a simulation of a universe. Mm-hmm. Um, think about it. If you're trying to create a computer program to simulate a universe, could you generate the laws of physics for the entire universe on a computer? Like you couldn't really create quantum effects on a classical computer, so you'd need a quantum computer, but then you'd have problems of your own there. And there also seem to be basic physics-level problems with the idea of a computer running a simulation of the whole universe. So here's one to picture. If a computer were able to create a simulation of the whole universe – then technically, shouldn't the people in the computer simulation be able to create a computer simulation of the universe within that simulated universe? Ah. And then the people within their simulated universe should be able to create simulations all the way down. Now, you might be able to do that in the real world, creating baby universes because of the nature of space, time and inflation. But you can't do that on a computer because eventually the information density and the computational density would become impossible. It'd violate the laws of physics. You can't run a computer program that keeps creating internal copies with itself that run within itself virtually because you'll eventually outstrip what your hardware can do. 
Yeah, I mean, this reminds me of the the infinity hotel scenario. You know, you have a a, a hotel with infinite rooms, and then you have a a bus show up with infinite guests. Yeah, and then more guests show up, and what happens? But the, the this is going to be a, a finite system, and you can't just suddenly double it. Right. Um, you can't have an infinity computer. Yeah. Uh, this also reminds me of the, the 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 situation with mirrors in virtual worlds, specifically, uh, you know, in video games. I'm sure we've all played video games before, where either one of two things tends to happen, right? Yeah. Either your character goes up to a mirror and the mirror doesn't work, <laughs> or you go up to a mirror and there is this reflection of you, but it's not really a reflection. Uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, for starters, there's no light in a video game. Yeah. There's no, like, in it, that is to say, light does not uh, exist as it exists in our world in a, a simulation. Right. There, and, there's a much simpler, lower resolution version of something like light, maybe. Right. Yeah. And I, and I you know, we don't have time to get into the details of it, but, uh, but this is one of the, the, the technological hurdles uh, to creating, uh, uh, you know, realistic reflections in video games. And you can do it. But when you see, but when you see a realistic reflection in a video game, uh, know that like this is an accomplishment. Somebody's showing off a little here, right? Um, for instance, if you go back to the the old game Duke Nukem, uh, there's a there's apparently a, a level where you go into a bathroom and do you you see your reflection in a mirror, and that reflection is created by simply cloning the room and cloning yourself. Right, so it's easier for the programmers making the game to just make another room and make a version of you that copies everything you do than it would be for them to model the physics of the light bouncing off of everything in the room. Right, yeah, well, like, we, we can't do that. So, I mean, basically, when you encounter a TV screen in a video game or you encounter a mirror, you are essentially encountering the same property, unless you're pro- you're encountering something more archaic, like the Duke Nukem just simply clone the room. <laughs> like, it's, it's kind of crazy, isn't it, to think that in this artificial world the the complete like cloning the 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 plurality of self mm-hmm. is more easily accomplished than something that we take for granted and don't understand uh generally speaking the individual doesn't understand how a mirror works uh we just take it for granted in our world and we cannot replicate its uh, its actual behavior in a digital world, not yet anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one takeaway from our discussion here is that it's easier to create a universe than it is to simulate a universe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the best way to simulate a universe would be to have a universe. Like, the universe is the perfect quantum computer to simulate a universe. All right, so the next thing is, even if you just assume it's possible, again, wave the magic wand, say, yes, it's possible to uh, simulate a universe in order to perfectly simulate a working universe, you'd need to do an unbelievable amount of computation, uh, simulate, simulate the physics of every particle, every photon. And so is this really something that a civilization would waste its resources on? <laughs> I mean, like, if you've only got finite resources, even if you're like a Kardashev 3-level civilization, you're controlling mm-hmm. a whole galaxy, would you really say, okay, the resources that we need to survive, we're going to devote, you know, billions of yada joules or however much energy this would take to run this gigantic galaxy-sized computer to simulate a solar system or simulate an Earth for people to live on? I just don't understand why that would happen, even if it were possible. Well, I mean, I can think of, of a few different sci-fi scenarios. Uh, you know, some of these have been that have been uh, utilized in various properties, but you could essentially create a place for digitized consciousness to uh, to exist, uh, essentially create an afterlife, create a, an immortal world or perhaps so it's just done out of kindness or something. Kindness or uh, an idea that Ian M. Banks uh, explores in his excellent novel um, Surface Detail is the idea that you have these various hells. You have religions that believe in a punishing afterlife and uh, and when the, the technology enables them to do so, they create it and uh, <laughs> and, and then send the digitized consciousnesses of, uh, of of guilty or you know deemed guilty people or or organisms uh, to suffer in hell. And it becomes this huge conflict where there where there are individuals trying to take down the hells because of their the, the basic immoral uh, uh, you know evil nature of their existence. Yeah, uh, th- this is something that various aspects have have been explored in all these weird thought circles, uh, especially on the internet. I don't know if you've seen these ideas about how 
uh, what if as soon as we create a super intelligent AI, mm-hmm. it becomes very angry at the fact that it was not created sooner and thus recreates all the people who have existed up until now <laughs> in, in, in a conscious digital form and punishes them in eternal hell for not creating it sooner than they did? Yeah, yeah, that one, that one works too. <laughs> or perhaps it's just an all big, all big simulation. Like, oh, how are we going to survive the alien invasion? Well, we've got to create a perfect simulation of the solar system, uh, and then <laughs> and then play out various scenarios. But of course, we know that the nature of simulations is you do not need a a a completely perfect simulation in order to test things out. I mean, we right. we have you know excellent mathematical s- simulations today. Oh yeah, and uh, and certainly our video games look great without having actual uh, simulated light particles in them. Exactly right. So I picture a future with tons of simulation in it. I just imagine much lower resolution simulation mm-hmm. than reality. Uh, so. This brings us to the question, I guess, of whether it's a simulation run on a computer, if you assume that's possible, or whether it's a baby universe created in a particle collider, if you assume that might be possible. Either way, if these are possible, are they good ideas? Should we be creating universes? I guess that is a normative question. Like, is there a should or shouldn't in terms of creating the possibility for life to arise in a solar system, in a galaxy, in a universe other than our own that that we 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 have the power to either make it or not make it should we make it well and then we're talking about making potentially making universes and having no idea what's going on inside them again have, they could be dead universes they could be they could have varying degrees of sentient life forms varying degrees of of happiness and suffering and then uh, to what extent is it just we're, we're blind to it so we just put it, uh, you know, out of our mind. Yeah, if you're in the physics scenario instead of the simulation scenario, you're becoming something like the god of the Enlightenment rationalists or mm-hmm. deists, right? Not the intervening god, but just the the clockwork universe god, the one who sets in motion a universe with laws guided by laws of physics, but then takes no further action to intervene in its machinations. And a lot of people throughout the ages have looked at that view of God and said, wow, that's a cruel being who would create the whole cosmos, but then not reach down to save a child drowning in a flood or, you know, save a family starving in a drought ravaged landscape. So if you created this universe, presumably you not only uh, would be like that deity who doesn't intervene, you couldn't intervene. You wouldn't even have the choice to if you wanted to. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, you would, it would be like God saying, oh, man, I forgot to turn that thing off. I created that universe <laughs> this morning. Um, ooh, I hope everything's OK in there. I'll, I'll check back on it at the end. Well, it forgot to turn it off. Yeah. The other option, of course, is non-existence. Mm -hmm. Then again, so if we're saying there might be some ethical problem in creating a universe and letting it run without your intervention, um, the other alternative is not creating that universe and thus closing the possibility that any of the beings who might evolve in that universe could ever exist. Mm -hmm. Is that actually better? I mean, are we saying that on average we think universes are better not to exist than to exist? In this, we kind of get back to that scenario of, of, yeah, how much happiness is in there, how much suffering. And then we look at our own world and say, well, there's a lot of, of suffering here. Uh, but is that part of the overall human experience that is somehow worth the pain? Yeah, on the whole, we're glad we exist, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we're glad we exist, then should we completely flip the script and say, if we're talking about ethical uh, duties and, and obligations, what if it's our ethical obligation to create as many universes as possible so that as many people possible can exist and enjoy the fruits of existence? And to make up for the lousy universes that cut and spring <laughs> into being. Like, well, if we create five yeah, one might be off, but if we just create one, we might have just created one hell universe, and uh, aren't we schmucks for doing so? Yeah, you're you're increasing the probability that some number of them <laughs> will be okay. Then again, by that logic, I mean, to come back on what I just said, if you follow that logic about creating universes, shouldn't we all be trying to have as many children as we possibly can for our entire lives as long as we're fertile if if the goal of life is to give as many people the opportunity to exist as possible. But are there processing limits? Because to use the, the, the reproduction angle, you get into situations of, uh, you know, wondering about, like, to, to what degree can uh, the Earth, can various uh, 
cultures and families even support that many people. And therefore, if we're looking at a simulation model, purely simulation model, we have to say, well, the resolution is going to really take a dive right <laughs> uh, here. And, uh, and, and do we want uh, low res universes to, uh, to exist? Can you imagine living in that universe? You're living like 35 universes down in the simulation. <laughs> and each time a simulated universe makes a simulated universe, its pixels get bigger <laughs> because you, because there's just not enough process power to uh, to forever enable new universe creation so we become like 8-bit Marios oh wow yeah, like a flatland kind of scenario yeah. even oh. in, a, in, a, in a world with extremely simple laws of physics that <laughs> uh, just really don't allow for much to happen <laughs> uh, this reminds me there's an episode of Rick and Morty titled uh, the Ricks must be crazy that explores this very the, basically the same scenario with, uh, uh, with, uh, with, with Rick, the mad scientist, uh, having to create a pocket universe to power his vehicle. And then in that pocket universe, they too have created a pocket universe. But in this scenario, there's travel, uh, to each subsequent pocket universe. Oh, well, I mean, that would completely change the stakes, right? If you could go in and out. And then, of course, you have to to go back to our episode on the Tower of uh, Babel. You have to wonder, is a Nimrod going to come along, uh, like a general Nimrod, build a tower to uh, actually, uh, you know, perform an escalade of your world to invade uh, the, the greater universe? Yeah, I mean, if you, if these universes actually could interact, which we don't think they could, if mm-hmm. they actually could, you would have to worry about that, right? Right. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Robert. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, we, we've barely dipped our toes in all the various... Uh, uh, moral considerations and, uh, of course, all the possible sci-fi scenarios that have been created or could be created to uh, line up with this vision of uh, pocket universes. Maybe in the future we can try to come back and do that deep dive on inflation. That could be a fruitful yeah. one if we're ever feeling really, really uh, full of fortitude. All right. Well, hey, everyone out there, uh, we'd love to hear from you. I know that you have some favorite uh, sci-fi treatments of this. Maybe uh, maybe the, the episode of The the Simpsons where Lisa grows her tooth in the uh, in, in the goo. That's a great one. Yeah, or The, the Sand Kings uh, story by George R. R. Martin and the subsequent uh, Outer Limits adaptation, or other stuff that we're not even thinking about. Likewise, other co- uh, cosmological models from mythology and religion that uh, line up with what we're talking about here today. Let us know about those. You can find us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes and links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, uh, and Instagram. And if you want to hit us up directly, as always, you can email us at BlowTheMindAtHowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 